Welcome to Tomorrow's Med Student. I'm Amrit, a junior doctor in the UK. On this podcast, we talk to medical school admission tutors, medical students, and doctors to help you get more of an insight into the application process to medical school, life as a medical student, and life as a doctor. Today's episode is focusing on life as a doctor, and we're talking to Dr. Simon Fleming, who's a trauma and orthopaedic trainee working in London. Trauma orthopaedics is a surgical specialty that deals with injury, infection and disease to the musculoskeletal system, so things like bones and joints. We chat about his career to date, including the challenges and highlights of his time at medical school and as a trainee doctor. He speaks honestly and openly about one of the more challenging aspects of medicine, which is the culture of bullying that exists, and all the work he's been doing to try and change the culture within the NHS and around the world. Simon's a really inspirational person and his chat with him was really engaging. There's lots to learn and lots of insight into a career in medicine. So let's get to it. Simon, thanks for taking the time to chat to us today. Can I just start off by asking you to tell us a bit about your journey in medicine? I went to school in London, like a, you know, like school, school. And then when it came to picking loads of medical schools, I, I went round, literally round the whole country, did like every open day known to man. This is back in the day before you could have like social media chats, like there was nothing, you had to go. And to be fair, even now, I still am like, you need to go and check these places out. And actually the medical schools that I quite liked were all the London ones, which I think was interesting because I I recognise I'm a bit of a city boy. Like I, I spend a lot of time in the countryside, but I've, I've always liked my cities. But actually... The thing that did it for me were the course, the, the course styles of a lot of the London ones had kind of moved to problem-based learning, a lot of self-directed stuff. And I think even at that age, I'd worked out that I was not great with lectures. Like if someone talks at me, I tend to just disengage, um, which did me loads of favours at school. But I recognised that at uni, I had a bit of a say in the matter. And so I started looking more and more of, at courses that were more around like tutorials and and you know you have a month to get this that and the other done and when you do it is up to you um so I trained at Barts in the London in the east end of London uh graduated like a million years ago um in 2006 uh did my foundation year jobs so my foundation year one my foundation year two in the in the Midlands in Derby and in Lincoln then was like okay, I'll go somewhere else. So I then went and did my core surgical training jobs in uh, Portsmouth, uh, down on the coast. I kind of wanted a change of scene. I wanted to be near some greenery and some forests and that sort of stuff. Um, and then at the end of that, I, you know, I'd recognised by that stage that I had other passions and drivers in life. Um, and one of the big ones was around education and training and teaching. And so I did what we now call a clinical teaching fellowship but again back in those days there wasn't really a word for it it was like I, I took a year out <laughs> you know you sound like somebody's like yeah I did a gap year like I literally I took a year out and was like I want to go and teach so I I was a teaching fellow so I went back to Barts in London uh because they knew me like it was home I even still had some people friends who were still medical students there like in their final year um uh and I spent a year teaching kind of anatomy, clinical skills. But it was a great year because for the first time in four years, suddenly I had weekends and evenings again. So it gave me time to do other things. Uh, I did a master's during that year because I'd 
I didn't want to intercalate. I didn't want to do a, a BSc or a BMed site medical school because none of that stuff interested me. Um, but I was a fourth year medical student when the London bombings happened, the 7-7 bombings. So I was like, one day I want to revisit this. So I did my master's looking at the 7-7 bombings, um, comparing military and civilian management of blast injury. And after my teaching year, I was like, I still want to be a surgeon, but I just feel like I'm not ready to go back into the rat race. I, I've, you know, I, I had an opportunity to see a little bit of the world uh, during my teaching year. I'd gotten to travel a bit teaching. So I went out to Africa to do some teaching of trauma skills and stuff out there. And, you know, I spent time in Ethiopia and time in Australia and time all over. And I was like, you know what, I want to go back to Australia. So I, I did another year out and was an orthopedic registrar in Australia for a year. Um, got a tan, lived my best life, but also, you know, got to see how a different health service does what it does. Right. Um, and it reminded me that I loved orthopedics. Um, it was the first time I'd been a registrar of any kind. And it was the first time I'd been given some autonomy and some freedom and that kind of next level respect that you sort of hear about. Um, and it was a great year. It reminded me that I loved what I did. So I, I came back to the UK, um, did a year kind of mixed, mixed jobs, orthopedic jobs, uh, SHO and registrar jobs to get back into the system, if you like. And then um, got onto my, my training program that I'm on now. So that was already three years out, like off the, off the standard career pathway. And then I became an orthopedic registrar, started doing loads of other things in my spare time, kind of what I guess you and I would call leadership roles, you know, um, trainee representation and all that sort of stuff. But the medical education thing was still always there. It was something I did at a national level. So I became the British Orthopedic Trainee Association education rep, which meant, you know, being involved in like designing curriculums and representing trainee views and and on a day-to-day -day basis at work, I, I was the guy who got given the work experience students. And I was the guy who all the SHOs wanted to hang out with because I love teaching and feedback and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I developed a research interest in it. And it got to the point where it was like, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. And because it was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I started looking at the people who do either what I do or nearly what I do, but not quite. And all of them had PhDs. <laughs> it was like, if I want to be teaching lots and working in a medical school and maybe working with the British Orthopaedic Association and the Royal College of Surgeons and working internationally to shape, shape education and make stuff better, I need a PhD. So I was like, fine. Uh, so I kind of bit the bullet. <laughs> and um, I'm just in the last couple of weeks of three and a half years out doing my PhD in medical education. So I go back to full-time clinical work next Wednesday uh, after three and a half years um, living my academic best life. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mixed bag, right? Because on one hand, it's not been an easy three and a half years and that doesn't include the pandemic. Like it's tough doing research in a PhD is, is tough. On the other hand, your time is your own. A bit like medical school, right? I've had three and a half years and I've had people say in the next six months, you need to do X off you go. 
and how I do it and when I do it is up to me. And I'm about to go back into the um, the clinical workforce where you have a rotor which says the other way around. Like this is what you are doing, whether you like it or not for the next two years, unless you submit some paperwork to the contrary. Um, and again, pros and cons. Like I'm looking forward to going back, but I'm also nervous and anxious about going back. Um, yeah, and I, I guess in my spare time, I'm reasonably well known for a lot of the work I've done around culture change in healthcare, trying to make it a bit more equitable, a bit more diverse, a bit more inclusive, and a bit less toxic. You know, medicine, in particular surgery, but but medicine in general has a reputation for certain attitudes. You know, you see them on TV, you see them in the media, you read about them in the papers. Um, and so in my spare time, what spare time I have, I work at a kind of national international level just trying to convince people that there is a good reason to maybe do things a little bit differently to the way we've always done them so that's really interesting um i'm going to take you back to the beginning and med school but just while we're on on the topic about culture and medicine for someone who's thinking about joining a career or joining or studying medicine and becoming a doctor to hear that there is someone currently working in their free time to try and change the culture of medicine probably sounds a bit shocking how would you explain the culture in medicine and the, the problems you see to someone who's just about to take their first step in the journey and go to medical school? Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it comes down to is medicine is actually no different from the rest of society, right? It, it is made up of human beings that exist in the world. As such, there is racism, sexism, homophobia, um, there is a gender pay gap. So, you know, men earning more than women. There is a lack of diversity at, in certain leadership positions. There are more noticeable lacks of diversity within some specialties compared to others. Um, and medicine has a hierarchy, just like the military, the police force, you know, working in the city. But... Um, because of the nature of medicine, which is it's somewhat protected because of the prestige and privilege that comes with it and a lot of the history and tradition that comes with it. Um, it's sort of gotten away with stuff that the rest of the world has moved on from. Um, you know, my, my friends and colleagues in the military are like, if I saw the behaviours on my military base that I saw in your hospital today, you know, someone would be for the high jump. But actually, you're all just rolling with it and it's like yeah it is what it is and and you know what I would say is number one I'm I'm not alone in doing this work I'm but I'm probably one of the more visible and prolific people doing this work and, and I guess I was one of the first to to start it um and it's because there's always been something about it that kind of rang a bit uncomfortable it kind of went a lot of my core against a lot of my core values now you know this is a podcast so no one can see me but like elephant in the room is that I'm a straight white private school educated rugby boy um so I'm very aware of my privilege that's not to say I haven't worked hard and that's not to say I haven't sacrificed it just means that certain characteristics haven't made my life any harder you know no one has ever mistaken me for a cleaning lady no one has ever said, well, I'd like to be treated by an English doctor to me. I'm, I'm very aware of that. But I, I became aware of a lot of this stuff 
pretty early on in my career. You know, at, at medical school, I became a second year and I was told, you know, um, the first years get you your drinks now. You know, freshers do this, right? Wow. And and you think about it, and at the time we laughed and it was funny. And now you look back on it and you're like, that's kind of toxic hierarchy. It's not quite bullying, but it's not far off. Like, you know, telling some 18-year-old, like, fetch me my my drink. And and it's all a bit juvenile, it's all a bit immature, but it it translates, doesn't it? It translates into the world we then go into of more hierarchy and more do this, do that, do the other. And and it was you know, as my career went on and I saw more and more things that I just knew. That's not fair because it makes me sound like an evangelist, right? Like I knew they were wrong. I didn't know they were wrong. I came to understand they were wrong um, through multiple little episodes and epiphanies and all the rest. And there's this, there's this wonderful quote by Maya Angelou, which is, you know, do the best you can until you know better. But once you know better, do better. And, and for me, I slowly started to know better about all kinds of things, you know, um, that teaching by humiliation doesn't work. But I saw loads of it and I was like, I guess that's how it is. And then I started to realize that maybe there were better ways. You know, you speak to certainly my parents and they'll tell you that they were hit at school and it worked really well. Like you did your homework or you got hit around the head. So of course they did their homework. We now know there are ways of motivating people that don't require that. Um, and healthcare is not exempt from all these problems that society has. Like healthcare has, we know, um, not only like staff on staff behaviors that aren't quite right, but we know that unconsciously this impacts on the care we give our patients. And, and at, a at a really basic level without dumbing it down, like that's just not okay. How is that in any way acceptable? How is it acceptable that, you know, more than 50% of people coming into medical school are women, but 7% of orthopedic consultants are women. Somewhere along the line, we're missing a trick. Um, you know, more than 50% of the people I went to medical school with were not Caucasian. They were from ethnic minorities. So, and yet in the areas that these people work in, that the people I went to medical school work in, we know that women and people from ethnic minorities have less good health outcomes and this isn't you know this is global but but so what like who cares it's not okay um we know that women and ethnic minorities have have differential attainment that is to say there is evidence that they do they are less successful in in certain exams and things now a lot of these exams are like multiple guess you know you color in the box thing so it's not like the examiner is unconsciously biased towards um, women or ethnic minorities, it tells us that we are failing them. They are having different experiences before they get to the exam. That's on the wards, at medical school. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't do anything else. And don't get me wrong, the world, the world is a slightly racist, sexist, homophobic, biased, toxic place, right? It is filled with all kinds of weird and wonderful hierarchy. I just don't accept it in healthcare. I hold, I, I hold us to a higher standard, in particular because we're the most trusted people on the planet and there's evidence to show that. And because we have the privilege and the power to do something about it. Um, and I feel that we have a duty as people to do better because we know better and we have no excuse not to.
like rant over. But yeah. <laughs> Thoroughly answered there. I appreciate it. Um, can I take us back to like the beginning? So why is it that you wanted to study medicine? Did you always know you wanted to do it or was it sixth form you went to a college and then you went straight to university? Yeah, so I, I am... Um, I always wanted to be a doctor. So I'm one of those people. Um, and my, so my, and again, it's, it's all in line with a lot of the evidence around privilege. My dad was a doctor, but my parents tried to put me off. They worked really hard at it. They were like, you know, and, and my, so my dad's um, a first generation immigrant. He was born in Eastern Europe. He was a Holocaust survivor. Um, my mum is a second generation immigrant. Her parents, my grand, my maternal grandparents were Holocaust survivors, right? So you would think as like a nice Jewish boy, they'd be like, yeah, become a doctor. And they were both like, don't do it. Like, don't do it. You are smart. You are clearly like a focused, driven young man. There are easier ways to make a living that will not require the, the, sacrifice is such a melodramatic word there are just like easier ways to make a living you know with better work-life balance yeah, they definitely are yeah, right everyone. and so they were desperate to put me off and mum I was talking to my mum about this a, a couple of weeks ago um she was like you know when you were five and six all of your friends were like I'm going to be a footballer and I'm going to be Superman and I'm going to do this and you were like I'm going to be a doctor and that never changed and when it came to medical school, you know, when you have to do that thing at interview where it's like, I like science and I want to, you know, help people. I, I could never really actually put it into words why I wanted to be a doctor. I, it always felt like I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And I didn't realize why I wanted to be a doctor until I became a doctor. And what I've realized is I don't really like science. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not a GP. I don't really want to do that whole cradle to grave tell me about the problems you're having with your plumber I, that's not my style of medicine it's not what interests me i like fixing things and what i realized is medicine allows me to fix the problems in people's lives and surgery allows me to literally fix things that's that's who i am it's it's what I am I'm a fixer I'm a solutions person and I I now have the vocabulary to express what I couldn't when I was 17 18 doing interviews which is you know whether it's a broken bone or a weird blood value or a problem with culture I like being like I want to work with people to fix stuff and that's that's why I'm a doctor because on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's something clinical or educational or cultural, I find problems and then I work with other people to find solutions. And that's where my job satisfaction comes from. Whether it's the patient walking out pain-free, but they came in mangled, or whether it's meeting a woman who is from an ethnic minority who's like, I'm a surgeon because you convinced me that that surgery had moved on and I could come and do something like all that stuff. That's where my job satisfaction comes from is fixing things that I know aren't right. So it sounds like you're very sold on the profession. You know, looking back, your parents didn't want you necessarily to go into medicine. Would you discourage any of your children? So, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm medical and my, my partner comes from a 
military background. Um, and we were talking about like, would you put them off medicine? Would you put them off the forces? You know what? No, I wouldn't put them off. But where my parents went wrong, where they were just like, do anything else. I think people need to go in with their eyes open. Yeah. I think there is a public perception and, don't, and you know, I've done loads of careers talks, right? Where with careers tutors and all the rest. If you're going into medicine for the wrong reasons, you are going to be disappointed. And some of those reasons are going in it for the money. Don't get me wrong. Our salaries in medicine are good. They are. We earn a very good wage. Thank you very much. But there are easier ways of making that money. And by easier, I mean on your mental health and on your work-life balance. I don't mean on ter in terms of like doing the graft. All of my friends who are lawyers work long hours. All of my friends who are working in the city work long hours. But they rarely have to make, you know, life and death decisions. They, you know, I am, I am 37 and I still have exams to sit. And uh, I am still a trainee, which means in the eyes of many, I am still not yet cooked. You know, I've got a TED talk, but people are like, one day when you grow up. Um, uh, I So no, would I put them off? Absolutely not. I love what I do. Would I make sure they knew what they were getting into? You know, this is what the work is like. This is what the life is like. This is the pros of the career, of which there are a million. But these are the cons of the career. This is what it looks like. This is what your life is going to be like. You know, and if they're like, oh, yeah, I know, or I still want it, then rock on, like go for it. Because I love the job and I wouldn't do anything else. And my, my school wanted me to go into um, either journalism or advertising. Like my best grades were always in English literature and English language. Like I'm a talker and a writer. Um, and I was like, yeah, but I don't want to do those jobs. Um, so... No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my kids off, but I would make sure that they, they didn't have that rose tinted glasses that, you know, that they knew what they were getting themselves in for as a, as a career. And then if, you know, if that's what they want as an informed decision, rock on. It's a great job. So you, you wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. You went to medical school. What was the highlight for you at medical school? Oh, Oh, that's a big one. So I was, I had a load of little, you know, I was very active at medical school. I'm, I'm a, I'm one of those people that did loads of stuff. The best moment at medical school. So, so I don't know about you. I, I, I did loads of stuff at medical school and it always felt like a bit of a thank, thankless task. Um, you know, even when I did shows or ran events or played rugby, you just kind of did it because it was done. And, um, at Barts in the London, we have a separate event to our graduation. So there's the graduation at the at the end of the thing, which is, you know, um, where someone just says, Simon Fleming, and you walk on stage and they hand you the little scroll and then you walk off stage like, cool, cool. Barts in the London um, does an event before that called the Rites of Passage. And it's only for the medical graduates. So obviously the graduation that you might be there with, I don't know, lawyers or English people as well. Like it's a graduation day, right? The, the rites of passage is a separate event just for the medics. And there's normally more space, therefore, for your, your nearest and dearest. 
so I, you know, my parents had had um, years of me coming home and telling them stories about, well, I've just put a show on in the West End, or I've just done this, or I've just done that, or I'm president of this or secretary of that. And they're like, that's nice, whatever. And um, at Rites of Passage, they read out your name, but then they also read out whether you got any colours or awards, which is a thing that you get at the very end of medical school from your, you know, if you've been very active in something. So Oxford call them blues, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, I have this memory because my parents had been aware that I was busy, but had just thought I was bunking a lot of lectures, really. <laughs> And so there was like the person in front of me and it was like, so-and-so, the ophthalmology prize, like polite applause. So-and-so, no prizes, like applause. And then it was like, so I had a drinking name at medical school, which was what everyone called me. Um, uh, and it was like my name, my drinking name, which was like the nickname the rugby club had given me. And then it was like, so, so my drinking name was Monster. Okay. Which, is, uh, which which says everything you need to know, right? Um, but it was like Simon Fleming. And then this is from like the warden of the medical school, right? So he's a big professor, he's a big deal. He's like, Simon Fleming, monster, come up here. And then he's like, right, I'll take a deep breath. Uh, association honours colours, rugby colours, rag colours, hockey colours, mixed hockey colours, drama colours. And literally there was just like the loudest applause anyone got. And I just got to see my mum and dad see that people that I'd done a thing and it had made a difference. And it was that, you know, you don't you don't often it all sounds a bit, you know, American. You don't often get to make your parents proud in that way. Um, uh, and that it was it was the fact that just the audience were like whooping and cheering. And it's like, oh, people have noticed that for the last five years, I've managed to pass all my exams and have done a load of stuff for loads of other people, you know, because it's rarely for yourself. It's Simon, can you arrange this? Of course I can, mate. Simon, can you do that? So so that's probably my highlight, followed closely by we put on a show in the in the West End, like a comedy show. Um, and I get to say that I put on a show in the West End, even though <laughs> even though it was like medical humour and was really disgusting and had loads of disclaimers on the doors, like, do not come in if you are easily offended, blah, 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 blah. But I get to, it's like a, a vague humble brag. But those are probably the two highlights. Nice. They're pretty good highlights there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, who, what advice would you give to someone who wants to apply to study at the same medical school you went to? What, what, would, what would you suggest then? So I, I, you know, you'll, you'll get loads of people who will tell you that they, they think their medical school is the best one out there. So for me, the reason I loved and still do love and I'm still involved with Barts and the London is it never felt like a medical school. It felt like a community. Um, Barts and the London showed me that there can be a flattened hierarchy. So as a first year medical student, I knew all of the second years, third years, fourth years, fifth years at the medical school, because it's quite a small medical school. But also I knew all the faculty, the teachers and the lecturers weren't these kind of aloof people who like breezed in, vomited knowledge at you and breezed out. They were human beings who would talk to you and take care of you and mentor you and sponsor you and support you. And, and for me, like, don't get me wrong, Barton London ranks super highly nationally and it get you know ticks all the boxes and it has the Europe's largest 
trauma center and all the research and blah, 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 blah. I would say reach out to people from Barts of the London, either on social media or go to an open day when they start again or whatever. And just talking about what it's like to be part of that community. And they will just light up and be like, yeah, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. I remember being a first year and, you know, um, as you do in your first year, just running out of money. And, and the number of people who I didn't know who they were, who were just like, mate, this is on me. And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't afford to pay you back. I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm, sk like, I'm skint. Like I need to get a job or another job, like a second job. And they were like, this isn't a loan. This is how it works. Like, let me help. Because this is how I was helped when I was in first year. And Barts from the London has a community that I've never really experienced in very many other places. That kind of family, close knit feel. Um, and you do hear about it from some other medical schools but not many because often so many of these places are these big sprawling 50,000 student things and then you've got Barts in London that's got like a couple of hundred people per year um, and the East End feels like a village so it feels like a little community unto itself um, so yeah I would tell people to reach out to both alumni and current students either in person or on social media sure ask them about the course you need to know what it's like, what the problem-based learning is like, what the anatomy is like, what the exams are like. Of course you do. But ask them what the community is like and they will just, you'll have to shut them up because they will just want to tell you about all of that other stuff. Yeah, I think I, I completely resonate with that. So I went to Warwick and yeah, you spend a large part of your time in, in lectures or group work, but it's the stuff around and outside of that at your medical school that actually makes your experience. That sounds very cliche, but I, I think there is a lot of truth to it. Um, can I just ask, so you, you mentioned money and for a lot of people going to university, especially going to medical school because it's so protracted, financially it might be a little bit difficult. So did you have a, a job? You mentioned two jobs there. How did you manage that? What, what did you do? Yeah. Was difficult? So I was luckier than some and not as lucky as, than others. Uh, and, that's, and that's the truth of it. So um, I had student loan, uh, which is what it is. And again, I know some people who didn't have to take out student loans and like awesome. Uh, and I know other people who lived off nothing but their student loans. I had um, student loan. I had uh, a job that I worked in the summer that paid really well. So all of my holidays, I, I worked. So I, I don't even know if these jobs still exist, but if they do, they're great which is kind of medical secretary work. Right, yeah. Um, so I would work in primarily GP practices. Um, so there are these people in the back office who do coding. So the G, you know, they, they put things into the computer and they, they take the letter that arrived from the hospital and they scan it in and they code it into the notes. And, and I would do that and it paid really well considering I would like put my earphones in, put my head down and do a long day. And I would do that for like two thirds of every holiday like Christmas, Easter, summer, whatever. Um, and I had a job at the student union working behind the bar. Um, and, and undeniably, my parents helped me as well. So I was able to ask my parents for help with my uh, rent as well. Um, and that's, that's how I survived medical school. 
Um, I had friends who weren't able to have parental support. I had friends who had nothing but parental support. I had friends who had three jobs. I had friends who had none. It's it, the long and the short of it is it's it's all doable. But again, it comes back to that privilege thing of like some people are going to have an easier life of it than others. You know, I, I I went to medical school with some people whose parents just bought them houses in the East End of London because it was cheaper than paying like halls of residence rent. Like, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I had basically holiday jobs, term time jobs, a bit of a student loan, well, the student loan and help from my parents. Um, on the other hand, had I not had help from my parents as, as my university girlfriend didn't, um, you can take out other loans and, and it, it's just, it's just awful, right? Because we, we now know that medical school is going to cost you, well, cost you is a weird word, right? Because it's all debt that you don't have to pay off till you start earning money. So, but, but the numbers are very scary. Like the numbers are 80 to a hundred thousand pounds are the, are the numbers we, we see when I work with, with undergrad groups. Um, but the truth of the matter is you do pay it off. Uh, but it is a barrier to some and to some it's a perceived barrier because they think that it's it's not possible and and you know i work with um the barts and the london alumni association i'm i'm on, i'm i sit on their board and we have pots of money to help people as well so there are scholarships out there there are funds out there that also support people because we recognize that some people just can't afford it you know there is no parental support there are no jobs there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or maybe they have, you know, caring responsibilities and actually they have other outgoings. Um, there are um, funds out there to support students and they're often really poorly accessed as well, which always surprises me. Like we regularly have to be like, we are hearing about lots of people struggling. Did you know you can send us a form and be like, I need help and their the help will be given. Um, so there are, there are other resources out there which are often under accessed and under, under represented because that's, you know, money shouldn't be a barrier to, to becoming a doctor. And, and it, it still is for many. No, yeah, I agree. It's very tough for some people, but it's good to know that there are, you know, once you get to medical school, there is help and support out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll pop some links in the show notes for Mary's way of accessing those sorts of things. Can, can I ask what you thought the for you the biggest challenge was while you were at medical school? So, um, learning how to learn. So. Um, I, when I did GCSEs and A-levels, I'd never really revised in any meaningful way, right? Like at school, I did my work, I did my homework, I did my coursework, I did quite well. You know, I, I, I put the hours in and I, that was what it was, right? And medical school was, was that self-directed learning, which I'd always wanted. It was the like self-motivated thing. So I had to suddenly learn how to revise and learn how to manage my time, the like work hard, play hard, 
ethos because I didn't want to miss out on all the opportunities that were there, but equally I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to lose my summer holidays on resets or whatever. So for me, I had to completely retrain myself how to how to work because the style of work I'd done at school, which is you go in every day, you do what the teacher tells you to do. So long as you deliver those things, you are okay. Didn't work at Barts and London because it's like you're, you're expected to be doing other things. You're expected to be working in your own time and you're expected to go away and read. Um, and I'd never really revised, like I'd never really made notes, like revision notes. Um, so I had to look, literally look it up and ask like pastoral support people that we had, like, how, how do people do this? And they were like, well, some people read books, some people make notes, some people highlight. And I had to go through a process of working out what did and didn't work for me. Um, and, and, and that was part of it really. Yeah, again, I completely resonate. That was a challenge I had as well. Uh, yeah, and I went around and just asked people who were doing really well how they studied. Yeah, like you'd never really had to do it like that before. I didn't really pay that much attention or anything like that. Uh, and it is very different. And in fact, you know, a lot of people in my medical school um, were found to be dyslexic and that hadn't been revealed before. And they'd all done degrees previously. And it was only when they got to medical school. And I don't know whether there is a lot of volume to learn. And I think that that gets all catches us all out at one point or another yeah i remember someone saying to me um medicine isn't hard it's just that there's a lot of it um and someone said it's more like learning a new language than it's like learning a subject and it's right right i could take anyone and teach them about the anatomy of something or the science of something or the pathology of something or how to treat something but to put it all together into this one cohesive thing is why it takes you know five or six years to get it all making sense yeah yeah assimilating all of that and being able to put connect all the dots in one goes is very yeah that's where the challenge of medicine is definitely. yeah exactly and um, so that was medical school and then you you've very nicely described your path since then but for people who don't know what a registrar is would you mind describing what it is and what your like day-to-day -day looks like as a surgical registrar yeah so um when you finish medical school you become a foundation doctor uh, your first year of foundation uh is called your fy1 and it's 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 nearly like a taster year you're heavily supervised you do a bit of medicine a bit of surgery and normally a bit of something else after your foundation year one job you go into foundation year two normally by then it's expected you have a feel for whether you're more medical or more surgical um, and again, you're, but you're still doing a bit of everything, building up your CV. At the end of your foundation jobs, you have to decide what flavor of doctor you are. Broadly speaking, are you a, a GP, uh, a surgeon, uh, a critical care doctor, a physician, etc. Like the broad flavor. So you go into surgery like I did. You become a core surgical trainee. You do core surgical training for two years. And then you pick what flavor of surgeon you want to be. So that's when you become a registrar. So uh, after two years of core surgical training, you decide, uh, right, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. You go through another selection process. And then you have uh, six years of being what's called a higher surgical trainee. And that is where you learn about your chosen surgical specialty. So 
I'm orthopedics. And during that six year time, I rotate normally either every six months or every year to different hospitals. And each six months or year, depending on the nature of the beast, you often rotate to a different body part in orthopedics. So uh, hips or knees or foot and ankle or hand and wrist or shoulder or spines or pediatrics, like all the stuff that orthopods do, which is kind of bones, muscles, ligaments, nerves. Um, realistically, on the day-to-day, um, every day in orthopedics, and it's one of the things I love about orthopedics, starts with something called a trauma meeting. So not many other, not many other specialties have this. Every day starts with a meeting with the consultants, the bosses, and all the other trainee doctors in a room, and you normally discuss all of the patients who were admitted yesterday as, as emergencies, all of the operations they need on that day, today. And you might even discuss the operations that were done the day before. So it's a great teaching opportunity. Mr. So-and-so came in with a broken hip yesterday. Today, we're going to fix it with this. Mr. So-and-so came in with a broken ankle two days ago. And today, we're going to fix it with that. Or we fixed it yesterday, so on and so forth. And then really, you have three places you can be. As a, as a registrar. Number one, on call, which means you are dealing with acute admissions. In other words, patients coming in through the accident emergency or through a GP or from a phone call from one of the other wards, you know, uh, Miss Bloggs has fallen over and hurt her hip. Can you come and see? Number two, you can be in an outpatient clinic. So that is where you are seeing either people who might need operations or people who have had operations. And you're seeing how they're doing, how you can help, what they may or may not need. You come up with plans. You need physio, you need surgery. Um, you're doing well. We don't need to see you again. We need to see you again in three months, etc. Or you're in an operating theatre. Um, if you're in an operating theatre, you're either operating on trauma, that is to say emergencies or elective work, um, planned operations, like, you know, hip replacements, knee replacements, carpal tunnel syndrome, etc. And, and really, that's your life as a, as a registrar. On top of that, there is an expectation that you will normally be doing some other bits and bobs as well to further your career. So whether that's research projects or auditing something or teaching other people or revising for exams. Um, and, and you're meant to kind of fit that in around your, your reasonably busy, busy timetable. Um, you can work full-time, you can work what we call less than full-time, other businesses call it flexible working. So again, this is a, a very recent change in surgery, um, but surgery has recognised that full-time, only full-time working excludes a huge section of the, of the world. So if you have a family, if you want to do academia, or if you just don't want to work Fridays, you can. Um, and obviously, if you do work less than full time, your training will take longer. But it means you can be a carer, be a parent, be a scientist, manage your work life balance, you know, whatever you want to do, the workforce adapts to those needs. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm always tempted by the thought of uh, doing less than full time training so I can do other things with my time. Uh, you absolutely should. I, so it's one of my greatest regrets is that I didn't. I wish I had. Um, 
I had some really busy years before my PhD where I was doing loads of leadership roles and I wish I had just gone less than full time and done them, you know, had a day a week to get all that stuff done, which I could have done. I just didn't because I'm an idiot. And um, can I ask you what's been your what in your career as a doctor? So since leaving medical school, what do you think has been the, the biggest challenge for you? If you could single out one challenge. What would it be? Work life balance. I keep getting it wrong. Um, there's there's a whole phrase about, you know, um, doctors often set ourselves on fire to keep other people warm. And there's a lot of that in healthcare. There's a lot of burnout that you see because we tend to, a lot of people in medicine tend to be quite perfectionist. We hold ourselves to unattainable standards. We tend to fatigue ourselves. So we get exhausted and we tend to think that the solution to a lot of our problems is just working harder. Um, <laughs> Probably and, time to know that this is a good Friday at 6 p.m. <laughs> so, right. no, well, exactly, yeah. right? Like, and, 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 and that's the thing that I've always struggled with um, is, is the work, you know, I've got a, a friend of mine who's a, a big dog out in Canada who says there's no such thing as work-life balance if you're a doctor. It's about work-life integration. There is no way you can that he believes that you can just be like, I'm either working or I am not working. There are two separate things. It's about how you get them to mesh, how you decide what, what evenings you're actually going to still give to doing a bit of work. Now, I don't necessarily fully agree with that. I think you can draw some lines in the sand. But you asked me where I've, you know, the, the thing I've struggled with the most, and it would, it would be that. I, and I still don't have it quite right yet um which is something i'm working on but still not very good at well yeah I, i'm definitely the same but i think uh, at least recognizing it is important right um, yeah it's like it's like the first step is admitting you have a problem i am aware that my work-life integration is not yet where it should be um the next step is trying to find a way of fixing that that works for me and and feels authentic to you know who i am and what i do cool okay so that's the biggest challenge what's been the, the single highlight of your career so far <sighs> i mean one day it'll be me getting my phd but i haven't done that yet so you know there's like little moments and then there's big moments. I mean, I remember the first operation I did from beginning to end. I remember the first time a patient thanked me and said that I changed their life and all the rest. And I, I, I remember the feeling of being on stage when I gave a Ted talk, like they're all different. They're all different kinds of, of wins for me. And one of the things that I have come to terms with over the last couple of years in particular is that success isn't a point in time, it's a journey. Um, I, so I, you know, without being truly awkward, but for those people who know me, it's kind of on brand anyway. <laughs> I don't think there has been a highlight yet. I think there have been some good moments, but the next success is just around the corner. So watch this space. That brings me nicely on to my next question. You have a lot of awards. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to list them all now, but um, which of them meant the most to you? 
that's a tough question and you don't have to answer it but um you know you know what the one that probably there's there's two um the the two that meant the most to me were um the royal college uh, in canada so they've got one big royal college of surgeons and physicians they named me their international leader of the year oh, well um which is a big deal right i've got a lot of friends and colleagues in canada but to have an external body like that just say we see what you're doing and and it it meant a lot because they had no reason to right like there's lots of people around the world doing all kinds of stuff so the fact that they were like yeah you and the other one is um the medical women's federation decided to have male members they felt that to be truly inclusive they should have male members um and so i was made the first um honorary male member of the medical women's federation and to you know I do a lot of allyship work in that space and I do it because it's the right thing to do. Like it, it burns as many bridges for me as it does make things better for others because people are resistant to culture change for all kinds of reasons. Um, but to have an organization like that say, we see what you do and we appreciate it was just very touching because I don't do what I do for recognition because if I did, I wouldn't do it <laughs> because mostly it pisses people off. Cause I mess with, I, I mess with the system. Right. Um, but to have the medical women's federation say, yeah, we see what you do and it's important. That was, that was pretty huge. Yeah. That's amazing. That's uh, that's nice. Just a couple of fun questions now. So if you were going to have a dinner party, you can invite any two people in the world alive or dead, who would they be? Yeah. You asked me about this and I, so there's, there's, so number one, it's a really sad thing. So number one, I would want Aristotle. And my reasons are weird. The reason I want Aristotle along is because my PhD supervisor is obsessed with Aristotle and I would get Aristotle to just write a section of my PhD because it would save me a ton of time. And like, it would be like a Bill and Ted moment of like, you can't argue because he actually wrote it. Um, and then... I'd quite like to speak to, so there's a guy called um, William Holstead, who's like the father of, of modern surgical training. Um, and he was famously kind of both amazing and inspiring and sort of all the things we now hold to be terrible about surgery. So apparently he would work, you know, three days and three nights without stopping. And he said that if you, you know, if you sleep, you don't care about your patients. And it turns out that that was probably because he was on a lot of cocaine but but I'd love to just talk to, to someone before surgical training was a thing and just say and and kind of show him what we're doing and say what do you think how would you make it better because clearly on some level he recognized that surgical training had to be more than more than than just cutting like he recognized that there was an apprenticeship to it and there was a community to it and there were all of these intangible things around it so i'd love to pick his brain just so long as he was you know chilled out and sober i guess <laughs> fair fair enough and what would you do if you weren't a doctor i would do something in food i'd either be a chef or a food writer yeah absolutely um, I, I love food. Cooking and then eating, aforementioned cooking, is like my well-being, 
wellness activity. So if I wasn't a doctor, I'd be either a food journo or a chef. Oh, nice. What's for dinner tonight? Uh, Chinese five spike, five spice duck breast with a port jus. I didn't even know what that last thing is. Sauce. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm being educated as well today. This is nice. Fucking sauce, basically. <laughs> oh, great. Um, so, look, Simon, thanks so much for um, chatting with me today. Uh, you've given us lots to think about and lots of insight. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover today that you think would be useful to someone who's just about to start their journey? No, I don't think so. I think this is, I think widening participation is something that is only starting now to get the platform it needs. So I think work like this is vital because otherwise we're just going to hear the same privileged male, pale, stale voices in healthcare. So what we need are different people to people like me coming to medicine. And that's the end of the podcast for today. I'd just like to thank Dr. Simon Fleming again for giving us some insight into his pathway into medicine and his time as a junior doctor so far. I'll also link some of the funding pages and the parts of the London Medical School admission pages as well to the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and you have got something out of it. If you have any questions about medical school applications, life as a medical student and doctor, please reach out to us on our instagram twitter and email address and we'll try and answer them in the upcoming episodes on our podcasts thanks